0: Gillian Knipe, and welcome to Art Fictions, where you use stories of art and the art of stories. Today's guest is the very talented artist Andrea V. Wright. Andrea is well known for her three-dimensional line drawings, which play remarkably different roles in the gallery or project space, depending on their accompaniments. Presented as bare bones, they are all outstretching and awkward with their complicated elbows and gangly limbs, spreading up the walls and across the floor, otherwise they're lanky structures upon which their loose hides hang. Andrea definitely has an intense relationship with her materials, as she constantly raises her ambitions, trying out new techniques and challenging herself to respond to how the stuff of sculpture might behave. I'm always fascinated by how she can make something formal and leaning towards architecture that also has the physical intimacy of the body, bringing something deeply personal into her work. For this episode, Andrea has chosen Flatland by Edwin A. Abbott. Published in 1884, it's a satirical novella which describes a world of two dimensions through the narrator A-square. He is enlightened by Sphere, who visits him from the three-dimensional spaceland, and eventually convinces him of possibilities beyond his current realm. All ends badly, with A-square, imprisoned for heresy, as the ignorant monarchs of Flatland decree any multi-dimensional preaching is punishable by imprisonment, or, depending on your caste, by death. <laughs> Andrea V Wright, welcome to Art Fictions. Let's begin. So tell me, are you much of a reader?
1: Um, I have thought about this and actually I don't think I am. I'm more of uh, someone who seeks experience um, I have gone through phases growing up reading a lot. Uh, you know, I had childhood books with just like the regular Enid Blyton and Nancy Drew was a big thing. So, and then more as a teenager, I read a lot of the books that were kind of like the beat books. I was looking at books like Jack Kerouac, On the Road. I was reading Herman Hess, you know, quite accessible books, Carlos Castaneda. I was also quite into spiritual books, but again, about experience. What
0: Um, would be one of those?
1: So, I mean, say Herman Hirsts his book, like Narcissus and Goldman. And it's about two characters who are friends and start off on the same road, but one goes into a more intellectual, more religious sort of path of enlightenment through self-education and through austerity. And this other character who then takes another path of more experience. His was about all the knockback, taking chances, risks, and all the things that happen to you, you sort of strike out on your own as, a, as an adventurer, but also amazing highs and incredible people you meet, people that you'd never meet in your own hometown, your own sphere. And I guess that's kind of interesting because I see myself more on that side. And I've always had good friends who who balance that out, who perhaps had that more um, pursuit of intellectual excellence. Whereas I was always very much more intuitive and about relationships with people and learning from people, Hmm. you know, traveling through Nepal, traveling, living and working abroad, busking on the streets of Paris and meeting musicians from all over the world there. And, you know, that sense of education.
0: That's really interesting. In fact, I've realized I've only asked you one question and I think we can just wind it up now because you've told me everything.
1: (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, I think it's great. Tell me why you chose the book.
1: So in a way when I went back to the the My Masters in two thousand fourteen I did think it was a good chance to push myself. Perhaps I lacked confidence or wouldn't necessarily come naturally. So I had this amazing tutor called Bessa Maria Lalic, very exacting woman. Her work's very much based on minimalist philosophy, and she recommended that I read it. I think because I was doing a lot of drawing works in steel, slender steel rods, just making simple adjustments and bends to them, um, you know, fixing to the wall and then creating shadows and tracing Mm. off shadows. Mm. So she recommended that I read the book. Um, She wanted me to look at it from the sense, we were talking about fourth dimensions and this sense of the shadow, this sense of the body performance involved in making this extended, expanded drawing. And, you know, where is that fourth dimension?
0: So that's what I wanted to ask you about. Speaking of drawing is that in Flatland, there's only shapes as if they're drawings on paper. And I know you've also created a lot of installations made from lines of tape. I think you've also used ribbon and they go on the floors and walls and also across the room. So they're very much like drawings in space. So can you talk a little bit about how these come about and how they're developed? So, for instance, the way you might start with a line and then capture its shadow.
1: They all stem from the three metre length of steel rod, cut and bend it. So I was creating square steel structures, welding them in the studio, starting with the square. So through bending these squares from different angles and then pinning them to the wall, it happened by accident actually because my studio had a really strong light source coming through the window and I started seeing these shadows. So this square then becomes much more complex we've discussed before I was saying you know almost in service to the shadow I would then take off the shadows and then move the light source take them off again move the light source you know so then you're building up this expanded drawing from this one square and there's obviously the temporal element of the tape because then you take it all down so in a way it's almost as temporal as the shadow I became really interested in that because I had been painting before then before I started my master's and I felt it was a really good exercise in re-engaging with you know three-dimensional practice really good exercise in thinking it's very meditative like any kind of drawing is
0: so in flatland the isosceles triangle which is the lowest form can possibly increase its angle by half a degree each generation and eventually become an equilateral triangle And this idea that this continual expansion will elevate one shape into a next shape. And when I think of vertical ascension, it looks like a series of expanded shapes. Are you working to calculated angles or are the development of your shapes more intuition?
1: There is a subtle system underlying it. I could have gone down the road of triangles, squares, circles, but I was really interested in the distortion, you know, the fact that it was a square, but suddenly once you hit a shadow on it, it became this complex, triangular, spiky kind of shape. So it's this transformation which underlies a lot of my work, you know, the sense of transforming something. So with Vertical Ascension, that was after many series of these expanded drawings. And what I was doing with those is photographing those shadow drawings and then sitting in my studio making small maquettes based on those angles and using one process to feed the next process.
0: And then how does that relate to somebody looking at it? I was thinking about the example of the penny on the table that a square is using to try and explain what perception is in his country or in Flatland. He gives the example of the penny on the table where from overhead it's a circle and then if you look at the penny on an angle it becomes an oval and then if you lower your view down to the table it becomes a straight line. And I was... Relating that, I suppose, in my head when I was reading it to something like Donald Judd's stack, where he gets the boxes that snake up the wall, and thinking about your work, I was wondering, at different stages, are you putting yourself in the shoes of a viewer and looking at your work as somebody who might come across it and walk around it and how they might perceive it at different angles?
1: Engaging with the work is this sense of line going off in all directions but there's also you know a subtle sense of what's nearest me and what's furthest away a slight trickery or illusion of not quite discerning what's closest to you and what's flat and what's actually in the room or three-dimensional in some of my other works prior to vertical extension and since It's more of an illusion because perhaps I've just stuck to black or, you know, one colour so that you've got three dimensional structures in there, painted black and then the tape in black as well. So I suppose what I'm trying to translate to the viewer is this sense of engaging in a kind of open architectural structure.
0: So you were talking about illusion there and the illusion of distance and that made me think of your work at the Thorpe Stabry show in Whitechapel which was just before lockdown wasn't it? About
1: months before lockdown.
0: Yeah and Etage 1 and 2. I felt that when you looked at them from a distance one of them actually reminded me of a Roman garment draping across a body And they had a really different sense from a distance, almost like a painting, a Renaissance painting. And then when you went up close and saw fabric and detail and it was not quite as beautiful and perfect up close. So I wondered if you want to talk about that in terms of seeing the work from a distance and then seeing it up close.
1: Well, I think, you know, it underpins, again, my, a lot of my work, there's this kind of illusion or this sense of a transformation, you know, between, say, standing at a distance and then coming up close to something and, and that kind of realisation, that leap in your mind. And I think it's very everyday. And we spoke about this before as well in the sense that how, you know, much of our lives, you know, especially in lockdown, this contemplation, the light streaming through the window, hitting your glass of water on the table and then the shimmering kind of mirage effect that is created Mm. in its wake. And, you know, I like to create a sense of ambiguity in my work. I think it's very much who I am as a person. I don't really want everyone to know everything about me. I don't want all the details. I want to be able to shift. I want to be whoever I want to be when I want to, you know, within reason, obviously. And I think, you know, coming back to that book, like I said, um, with the Herman Hesse book, the two characters, you know, I see a very strong duality in myself, almost a sense for order and the need for placement and reduction and simplicity, would also on the other side, the sense of accepting that actually I can also be really messy in myself, whether it's emotionally or in the way I look or, you know, I want the freedom to be both. And I suppose when we're talking about this work, the tage, you know, there's that sense of the distance where the composition's flattened and you think, OK, I've got this. You know, I can see it's moving, it's rippling. You can't see the detail. You know, it's like looking for something with your eyes half-closed. And then when you actually get up closer... There's this really tactile, slightly grubby, you know, it's imprinted. As you know, it's from this, my studio floor. Um, it's ingrained, it's accreted and it could turn quite a few people off in the sense of its sort of rubbery fleshiness. And it's a very different thing.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. I remember when I went and saw that show and we were talking about your studio floor and then it's very difficult to not look at the gallery floor and I recall there was like a manhole cover or something. I can't remember. But all of a sudden that becomes so much more interesting because that's what, well, for me, art does. It opens your eyes to other things. And that happens in this book as well, that possibilities start opening up for a square into different dimensions. And once they're opened up, he can't unopen them up, if you know what I mean.
1: Once it's seen, you know, you can't unsee it.
0: Yeah. So coming back to that idea of transformation, I feel it's not just in the way you produce the work, uh, that one thing transforms into another or one shape transforms into another, but that's also available for somebody looking at the work. I was thinking of Laplace in Prevent This Tragedy, which was a show the show you were in curated by Vanessa and Martin at Dat Eagle. And how there's that sort of look but don't touch in that work. And in Flatland there's a process via touch where you learn to understand what shape everybody is. And the greeting of can I feel you <laughs>
1: That's really funny the way he describes that actually, is not not
0: it? Isn't it? They've not been living with a restriction of two metres apart. <laughs> they wouldn't know who anybody was. But I do think that whole touch thing was interesting or funny, thinking about look but don't touch. And there's an extra, if you like, temptation to touch your work because it looks like it's just been arranged how it is. It's changeability mm. is very much present in it.
1: With many of my works, they are either site-specific, you know, or they are assembled, you know, so they're assembled on site. Just going back to the uh, show with Thorpe Stavry and um, the Etage and the Rippling, they were arranged by me. You know, I didn't ponder for days over it. I was thinking, how am I going to drape these? I've got to think about gravity. There's lots of different considerations, but they're placed and then they're taken down, folded and put in, in the suitcase and brought back to, you know, the studio. And then with Laplace, it was very much that, um, again, working with latex, as you know, very transformative because you start with a liquid that becomes a solid. I mean, I was a bit more formal in the presentation of Laplace. So, you know, taking that imprint of the wall, you know, with the latex, you know, there is that sense of, you know, tactility. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm full on tactility with making that work. It's all about how I use the materials, how I paint it on, peeling it off. You know, there's a very, you know, there's a lot of ritual involved in making a work like that and repeated steps. You know, I'm actually quite happy for people to, to touch it because, you know, you can't help but want to touch the latex. Um, ripping it down might be another c- case, but I understand the urge to want to touch it. But yes, coming back to the question, it's not a sort of solid object that you could hug or caress and it won't change, you know, because it's solid, it's either made of plaster or
0: bronze or something.
1: You know, these are very temporal materials, so I guess it is difficult to engage with them physically, but not necessarily emotionally.
0: So there is that feeling that you are using in the making of the work because, well, you've just talked about that idea of a sort of ritual. The work is not necessarily made in a cerebral way. The way you move your body also comes into it.
1: I mean, I did plan that work in my studio beforehand. So I went and I had a site visit, so I knew exactly what I was going to do. I had a rough idea of the dimensions I hired at the scaffold, knowing I'd need it to, to take that imprint of the full height of that wall. I am quite drawn to processes that demand a certain execution. So, you know, they're not free and random or chaotic. They are quite orderly.
0: I was also thinking about that wall in the context of the book where a square talks about the ancestor who has rheumatism. I don't know if you Mm -hmm. remember that part where he was being felt by a polygon (laughs) (laughs) and because he had rheumatism, this caused some sort of quick shift and he accidentally pierced this polygon who was a higher status being. And it resulted in a long imprisonment and it threw back the family a degree and a half to an isosceles which took five generations to recover from. And in one sense, that's a really funny, ridiculous story. In another sense, that is how it is really, isn't it? Because we were talking about the bricklayers that probably would have made the walls that you were imprinting and wondering Mm -hmm. about what sort of history they had and what their work environment was like. And your great-grandfather was a stonemason in Liverpool and contrast that over generations and your father was an architect Like in my family, you've gone through these shifts in, I guess, what people do for a living. I know what it's like in Australia, and it's a lot easier to Mm. shift around, whereas in this country, not quite so much. Mm. Yet here you are in a very different place because you've also worked in fashion, you've worked in music. You're not part of that time of your great-grandfather,
1: I do feel quite strongly about my roots. I'm, you know, quite rebellious of these hierarchies. I believe don't judge a book by its cover, you know, that sense. I don't like the class system at all. Mainly my ancestry is Irish, and then went to Liverpool, like lots of Irish people during the famine. Just coming back to the wall, I suppose I was thinking about those bricklayers brought in to build all those buildings in London or around, you know, major stations, Brixton, where that particular industrial building was, where I made Laplace. Men brought in to build them, probably living in 10 to a room, coming in, not paid much. And, you know, they were called like navvies, maybe travelled the country, you know, from job to job, picked out in lines. And when I was painting that, well, I did feel quite close to history because, you know, I was three, four metres up on that scaffolding, right to the the rafters. And, you know, as I was painting on the latex, I felt I was kind of in reverse, sort of mimicking the rhythm in some way. I felt a closeness to labour-intensive occupations that most people, and certainly my ancestors, you know, worked their way up through the ranks. My Great, uh great-grandfather didn't start as a st- you know a master stone mason he started like everyone else probably at the age of 12 assisting the master stone mason we've certainly made a few leaps um, in only a few generations in my family And like I said, my father is an architect, which is very much seen as a respected profession. Very much different from his father, who was a tanner, working in a tannery. There is an ability in this country to improve your lot. Uh, Certainly monetary uh, rewards have shifted. So I do think we live in different times. But then, you know, going back to the book, there's still the same injustices now and the same restrictions on social mobility that you had then, over 150 years ago.
0: Absolutely. And I thought it was so miserable and yet really funny when they were mm. talking about the Universal Colour Bill in ancient times. The Universal Colour Bill was authored by Chroma... Kromos- Chroma... <laughs> Say it. (laughs) Is
1: it chromostates or something?
0: (laughs) Chromostistes where everybody started decorating each of their sides so that over time people equalised and the circles could see what was coming. There was going to be equality amongst everybody Mm -hmm. and they convinced people that this was a really bad idea because then you wouldn't have the class system and Mm -hmm. therefore you would have nothing for your children to strive towards. In fact we'll probably all become convicts because they were all The sort of thieves and criminal class were increasing Mm -hmm. in size because they had been used in schools as demonstration models for children and then killed after a month. Just (laughs) horrific.
1: It's very clever, isn't it? Like the colour being flamboyant and, you know, the sense of chaos or fervid emotion and this sort of expression of joie de vivre or something. You know, there's this kind of let's put a lid on it. I do feel like that within this country and I do think that's very frustrating. It's very tribe orientated, you know, stick to your crowd and this kind of misguided loyalty almost. I think they're also, there's a really strong middle class and which, I don't know, maybe I belong to it. Probably do, probably from the outside I am. I think sometimes they're controlling everything, you know, in the sense of mannerisms and a sense of conduct. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, political rules or justice system, but they maintain the sort of status quo. Do you, have you heard of the two Ronnie?
0: Oh yeah, we used to watch them every week, yeah.
1: There's a great um, sketch with John Cleese. So John Cleese is very tall, then you have Ronnie Barker who's in the middle, and then Ronnie mm. Corbett who's really small. And Ronnie Barker in the middle is going, I look up to him because he's upper class and educated. I look down on him. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, a complete mickey take on the whole class system. Rereading the book this week in preparation for today, you know, did really scream at me how similar those times are to now.
0: Petty, ridiculous, but it's a structure. And if we didn't have that, what would we have? And that comes into play in the book. They end up banning colour, banning the possibility of equality because they're terrified of what it might be replaced by, Mm. which sounds very familiar.
1: Total anarchy.
0: Yeah. I wanted to come back to you talking about learning through experience and the piece that you made in 2015 called Ghost, where you cast in latex the interior of a fishing boat in Cornwall. So you had quite a nice story of how that came about and also the experience you had making it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Ghost was uh, made on a residency. I won a Paul's eleven Prize. There was five of us who were invited then as part of this prize to undertake a 10-day residency in Paul's Leaven Cornwall. So I had an idea that I would really like to latex the hull of the boat. I couldn't just go and do it. I had to then talk the harbour master into letting me cast the hull of one of the boats. I talked him round by doing a sample of something he didn't really care about, painted the latex on, Let it dry, peeled off, and said, "See, it doesn't damage the boat." So, you know, at the beginning of the process, the harbour master and his staff were quite suspicious of me or kind of dismissive. But by the last day, obviously, after I kind of said, "Oh, do you fancy a coffee? I'll bring you a bacon sarnie," they were then helping me. (laughs) And you know, but it was interesting because I actually got to really engage with the community because people would stop and just think, "What the hell is she doing?" They maybe thought initially I was painting it, and then. you know, I had lots of chats with people just passing the time of day and they started opening up to me in ways that they probably wouldn't if I'd sat there across the table from them. Because I was busy with something, suddenly a story would come up about their father who'd been fisherman. It's tourism that leads the industry there now and not the fishing industry. You kind of have to be brave about it. You have to think, I want to do this. I don't care if I look like an idiot. I could have chosen the safe option and thought, I'm not going to make that piece. It was a risk and it was really well received there in Pulse 11. And I think they were quite moved by it when I spoke to them as it being like a ghost of a dying industry.
0: Yeah, I can understand. It definitely was a beautiful piece and the way that it hung and draped and it looked like a vessel that had emptied out and in a way didn't have a use anymore. That's what I thought about it before I knew the story of it. It's interesting that you say that, oh, I didn't care if I would look foolish. In the book, a square considers himself for a moment to be a god because he can see in these three dimensions and sphere scoffs and states that if that was the case then the lowest thieves in Spaceland would be considered gods. In other words there is nothing mighty about being able to see more and I think I can hear that in your story where you're not coming in as some sort of pretentious artist that's cleverer or more capable than anyone else. You're just going into a community noticing the vibe that already exists in that community and creating something that represents that, which is actually yeah. quite a humble endeavour. And it also gives that community the opportunity for a voice for that loss in the same way that people are telling you stories of their fathers and grandfathers who have been fishermen. Yeah. Going back to Etage 1 and 2, so my understanding is that that is a word in meteorology for the distinctive forms of clouds, as in upper, middle and lower, and it's derived from the French word, which means floor. Is that where you've got it from, from floor?
1: Yeah, I got it from, you know, the use purely as floor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to connect to the French origin of that word because while it's floor or story as in a multi-story building and it's then applied to meteorology in terms of three main altitude levels, I did think of that as a way of categorizing in the same way that they do in Flatland where everything's categorized and how that also happens in the art world I mentioned earlier Donald Judd, that was a time when Donald Judd was working in the 50s that silo categorizations started to become irrelevant. Different ways of working started to merge. How do you see your work in the sense of categories or do you not see it as falling into a category?
1: I can't help but want to move between materials and let them dictate the category in a way. You know, in the 70s, definitely, you know, there was that element of notes on the index written by Rosalind Krauss when she discussed this sense that, you know, all the definitions had gone out the window suddenly people you know really mixing up between mediums and the sculpture no longer stood on the plinth and it became part of the room and I guess with my work I'm still working my way through it and you know I haven't sort of thought I'm a sculptor you know on my MA you didn't specialize and I felt that I enjoyed you know the fluidity of drawing sculpture and painting of using different materials. I guess I do understand when some people say that's quite painterly as an opinion to the rippling fabric with pigments in and the way it's displayed. But I'm thinking of it as an idea or going through a set of processes again, really. So to me, I think it is definitely the process leads the way. And I do like to jump between things. I made these laser cuts last year. I really wanted to explore that as a way of making. So I used my tape installation drawings, taught myself Illustrator, traced off those line drawings and got them cut in plywood, leather, rubber, etc. But then I had all these offcuts. And so then I turned my attention to doing something with all the offcuts. I might be drifting away from your question here, but I do think it's about the materials and the tactility of them and that sense of there's no limitations. And the way I see it now with contemporary art is, that you know, there is that blending. You can look at fashion and furniture design and they're riffing off fine artists. And there's all this sense of this cross-fertilisation. So I want to be part
0: of that. I didn't think it was getting away from the question at all, because you were talking just now about doing the laser cuts. Was that what you did during the plot residency?
1: Yeah, um, when I applied for the plot residency, I was very clear about what I wanted to do. I made the proposal that I want to use the laser cutting technology. Obviously, there's more of that in London. It's more accessible than it is where I live in Somerset. So for the first sort of four days, I just taught myself, illustrator, to create vector files We made laser cuts. And I started with photographs of my tape drawings and getting those cut. And then I thought, well, I want to explore materials. I could do, you know, leather, I can do the rubber, I can do plastics. So, you know, what would happen to this structure if it was soft? What would happen to it if it was rigid in MDF and then painted? What would it look like if it was in a really sleek, rigid piece of acrylic? You know, so again, it was about taking one idea and realising it in different
0: materials. I thought those pieces were really successful. They almost move into being garments. And I find that your work does that thing of being a very serious structure to a garment. And I know we've talked about this before, but I just want to go over a piece like Vertical Ascension, for instance, looks like it's wrestling with itself. And then you contrast that with Laplace or Etage. They have a calmness about them because you're using 90 degree angles instead of those triangular shapes. And... When I use those descriptions, I feel like I'm talking about some sort of figurative piece. And so is figuration in some way at the basis of the work?
1: Yes, I do think it is. I feel very involved physically in my work. You know, I use my sense my proportions as I engage with materials. And I am thinking about that. And I do feel that quite often in my work, you know, the sense of poise and posture comes very much into the work, whether I'm making it or actually in the the physical manifestation of it. You know, whether it's the surface of the body, like the skin and then the skeletal frame, I do actually think underpinning all my work is the body. Is that sense of the, the physical frame, the architecture, you know, but not not sense of, you know, the, the body as in a portraiture or, you know, any sort of traditional sense. But, you know, the sense of where I see it outside of myself as well, like in architecture or in materials. And again, I think that's why I'm drawn to making these line structures and the sense of dividing space. You know, it's almost like carving something up. And creating a form that relates very much to physical sense, and then my having to do it and making it and moving around it is also very physically engaged, slightly performative. And then with the latex, I do see it as moving between again, you know, surface architecture for not, you know, a sense of the life of a building or a life of a surface, and extracting the residue from that as these skin-like architectural surfaces, also the sense of it being draped very figuratively. As you know, I used to work in fashion and, you know, a lot of the time when I am assembling the works, we were talking about that early, there is a sense of dressing something, there is a sense of attending to the frame, you know, that underpins it.
0: Yeah, I definitely got a sense of that, for instance, with etage there was a draping that reminded me of I've never worked in fashion but I've seen in films where somebody will just cloak the dummy in fabric and it sort of it had that sort of sense as if you were trying something out I like that sense of experimentation that was in that work I'm going to ask this it might not go anywhere which is fine so in real life Edwin A. Abbott who was Edwin Abbott Abbott Did you know that? (laughs) (laughs) That's not funny. (laughs) He was experienced as a schoolmaster from the age of 26, mind you. He was a head teacher, a theologian, an Anglican priest. So he had this great breadth of experience that he brought to his book, uh, he wrote a lot, and he did retire from being a head teacher and commit himself to theology and writing. And Flatland was the book that became very famous. Well, it actually didn't at the time. It became very famous when uh, Einstein, that guy, Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> When Einstein published his theories of relativity. And of course, then they looked back to Flatland and the stories of the fourth dimension. I quite fancied thinking that it was this breadth of experience that enabled Abbott to be able to write about these sort of absurd ideas rather than say, if he was just experienced in theology, he may not have had that expanse of imagination. And I think of that with you, with your background in fashion and your background in music, because you were a singer, I believe, and yeah. how performance and a belief, a trust, I suppose, in things outside of art, informing art, do you see that that makes for a richer practice? Or I suppose you don't know anything other than that practice.
1: I think about the author, Edwin, and... It's, it's interesting you say he was a schoolmaster, and he I get the feeling he did interact a lot with other people. He was very, I think, compassionate. He would have been interacting with the school life, the children, the, the parents, I guess. And, then, you know, a sense of humour and a sense of um, humanity that that book could only stem from someone who had a certain kind of knowledge and a certain kind of experience. And coming from a pure mathematician, it wouldn't have had that relationship. There's some really funny language in there. And I think he's even making it more so. You know, he's emphasizing the pomposity, the language and the the way he describes women. It's an exaggerated point of view. You know, good God, you know, the the sort of overemphasis on certain things that are kind of ridiculous and silly. And, you know, I did laugh. So um, coming back to my knowledge, I think an art practice can be whatever you want it to be. You know, I'm reading more now and kind of investigating certain other aspects. And I think you can gain a lot of knowledge by experience. When I was on my MA, I made sure, I mean, I grew up in London, but I made sure I was going to the shows in London I was identifying artists that I um, related to and who were in the same sort of playing field as me, potentially, or I was in there, shall I say. I wanted to aspire to be like them. And I made sure I went to those private views and I went on my own. I didn't know a soul in there. Gradually, you know, you get to know people. So through that and having, you know, being sociable, so using social media as well, get gains you access into the art world. But I stand very much by my understanding. I think there's a lot to be said for intuition, emotional intelligence. It's you know it's not always just about making the work. I'm still drawing on my own experiences. I'm still thinking about my story, um, so I'm not trying to adopt someone else's story into my own. So I draw on my father's practice as an architect, my childhood watching him drawing. You know, I had quite a difficult childhood, a sort of dysfunctional family. I was one of six children with a single parent, you know, just my mum, really, while my dad took architecture jobs around the world. You know, so I was quite independent from a young age. You know, I didn't really go to school after 14. I very much wanted to connect with people, I suppose, and um, find uh, life through doing it you know, not thinking or talking about it or sitting in uh my room dreaming or watching films about it. You know, coming to my practice, the best ones, aren't they, when you look back, are the ones where people are very much, um it's not about being the best really, but you know, the most in you know, the ones that I love to engage with are, you know, when someone, you know, makes that strikes out for independence, you know, like um uh, Agnes Martin saying, I'm leaving New York, I'm going to I'm going to live on my own, you know, talk about fiercely independent, talk about strong and and brave, you know, that yeah. sense of doing it her way. I, I'm, I'm kind of making it up to a certain extent as I go along. I mean, I think that also comes from not going from a BA straight into a master's and having, you know, just had an art career, you know, if you want to call it that. Since I graduated, you know, I was a musician, I was a singer, jazz singer, I did lots of gigs. I was involved in that world. I went into the fashion styling by accident. I kind of went with the flow of things, I'm kind of reconciling myself with the decisions I've made by honouring those experiences and trying to bring them into who I am as a human being and into the work itself.
0: So speaking of experience, there's actually a Scottish philosopher, David Hume. He also believed that you learn through experience. So the example is that if you grow up in a cave, you can't know what life is like outside the cave. You might mm. be able to know about it, but you can't know it. And so mm. he very much believed that and wrote a treatise about that. So he wrote that for you.
1: It's funny because I'm looking at the brief overview of philosophy at the moment. just read something about Voltaire and I think it's just going on to David Hume.
0: We'll have to catch up about that. That really brings me back to the book and the author Edwin Abbott was actually accused of misogyny due to his portrait of women in Flatland. As straight lines, they can never improve their station They are effectively needles. They're actually quite dangerous Mm -hmm. and they are the lowest of low and they are not given any education which exacerbates their stupidity. And I'm going to read a brief example. To the readers in Spaceland, the condition of our women may seem truly deplorable. And so indeed it is. So the author is saying this is really shit for women here and I didn't understand how critics wouldn't have got that but anyway they didn't. So when there was a reprint of the book he added in The Square was writing as a historian. He has identified himself perhaps too closely with the views generally adopted by Flatland and as he has been informed even by Spaceland. That bears thinking about in terms of the art world and women in the art world. So you gave the example of Agnes Mm -hmm. Martin and she was an exception at the time. And we've also talked a little bit about Eva Hess and Heidi Bucher. What's your sort of overview of how things have shifted more favourably for women or less or, you know, of course Mm -hmm. it's not enough.
1: I mean, obviously it's more politically correct now, you know, the sense of, how women are represented and treated, but it doesn't mean the thinking doesn't go on underneath it. But in my respect, I have, again, because I was brought up by a single mother without a father, I mean, my dad's great, but he wasn't around. I mean, I've got very strong older sisters, and they, we've always kind of been very strong-minded and... I do have lots of female friends and I completely relate to being subject to awful misogyny as well. But I don't want to be defined by my sex and I just want to keep going with my work. Two tutors on my MA, one was more of the theory element who's saying, well, you would have got higher mark if you'd mentioned feminism. And then the other saying, that's ridiculous. I've never defined myself in those ways. I I make work. The market will always catch on, latch on to the next interesting thing. Try not to observe that too much. Get drawn in by it.
0: Now I want to ask about going from point land to Flatland to, to line s- land, to space land, yeah. to thought land, to point land. There's always further possibilities.
1: Well, I, I still, I thought it was interesting, the sense of the leaps that you go through, you know, in your mind, as you move your attention or your considerations of each of those lands. You know, if you animated that, it would kind of open up to be this massive transformation. But I mean, that's the thing. If you're, if you're investing time and energy in making work, there's always going to be either happy accidents or other work that stems from that. You know, that's, that's the beauty of the best work is when it does make those shifts where one project uh, feeds another or leads into another. I'm really into these collage works because I think they've opened up another door for me. Especially since they're based, they're from my own work. It's making me think differently.
0: I just wanted to bring us back to the book again and how 12 months after he returns to Flatland, a square tries to picture a cube in his head and he can't quite picture this three-dimensional object And so he doubts what he's seen. And of course, the author is a theologian and an Anglican priest. So perhaps he is talking about faith there. But I was thinking about it in terms of inspiration and how difficult it is to stay with the struggle, but much more interesting to stay with things being open-ended and questions. And what is pertinent is that this book is written on the eve of the next millennium, which was 1900. And of course, the sphere visits Flatland on the eve of the next millennium. So it's all about this idea of the future and what is the future going to hold? And here we are having this conversation towards the end of lockdown and the question Mm -hmm. of what can we expect coming out of that? And I just want to take us across two pieces that I feel are important right now. One is last year, Jordan Baseman created a piece called Radio Influenza, where he gathered from the British newspaper archives uh, records of everything that happened in the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1919 which killed at least 50 million people worldwide. So that in itself, the timing Mm -hmm. of him doing that work last year and then coming Mm -hmm. into this year and there actually being a pandemic, was Mm -hmm. just bizarre. There's also, in 2017, Laura Spinney published a book called Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World, which, by the way, is technically incorrect because the Spanish flu didn't start in Spain it was only that they had free press so it's where it was first reported what she says in the book is that art was not the same after the flu it was a decade in which the artistic world turned its back on science and progress a decade in which artists said we had nothing on the ancients after all
1: So I do think, you know, firstly, what you said about these pivotal moments, you know, when the book was written, the millennium where he takes a trip into spaceland, you know, we're on these sort of threshold points. Will we slide back into what we already know or will we move into a different future? And I do think we're, you know, we're living through, we're going to live through a significant change. You know, making my maquettes during lockdown and working with, with recycled paper as well and things, you know, that I was sort of turning myself away from this overemphasis on our digital world that we've been forced into. You know, I wanted to go back and have that tactility again and that sense of play and remaking works or cutting them up and reattaching them and making these new things out of something else. There has been moments where I felt quite like everyone else, bit down. I felt a bit sort of frightened about what's to come. And being someone, as I've said, who loves experience, who loves that interaction with people. Just before lockdown, I was in a show at The Couple Project, Central, which is right in the middle of Soho. It was kind of quite sunny. I was milling around. Oh, I was thriving on this feeling of... You know, decadently sitting outside a shop, a coffee shop, you know, in Soho, watching people go by, and all the little um, uh, textile shops there, and the market, and the street food, and the, the kind of the beauty of all that. I kind of crave that now. For a lot of people, I'm guessing that there will be a rethink. I do think um, I will work differently. I've been really interested in the artist support pledge. And it actually did sort of um, bring to my notice how much my work is about these, um, these unstable materials. Because uh, it's a selling platform, as you may know, that uh, you sell a piece for up to £200. And when you've made £1,000, you buy someone else's work. So the money goes back in, into other people. I realised that I have very little work. That I could you know include in that I feel like you know up until now I've been chasing one project after another and and so I guess that got me thinking I would like to make my work a bit more object-based perhaps a bit more permanent and stable so I'm working a lot smaller I'm working on things that are more tangible I do see my practice changing
0: guess it would be ideal to maintain something of each because there's something about the scale of the large pieces that you do which is very much mm. part of their appeal and mm. their ability to connect with our body anyway I do ask everybody who comes on this podcast what book are you reading
1: I'm reading a brief book that's just taking me through philosophy and a remarkable life of skin by monty lyman an intimate journey across our surface so i was kind of interesting again you know i've had this book for a while so in lockdown i can dip in and out of it it's not a novel it is kind of a microscopic look into the science of skin and then this book's quite interesting as well this george preck book uh, species of spaces and other pieces This one does appeal to me because it's lots of short essays
0: and poems. I know it's really Andrea Wright, but I do like to think of you as Andrea V Wright. (laughs) Like um, Edwin A Abbott. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. No,
1: Andrea V Wright. The V is there because there's so many Andrea Wrights out there.
0: I do like the way that AVW mimics your work or your work mimics all those angles. Uh, anyway yeah. you've been a lovely guest thank you very much for being on Art Fictions it's been
1: an absolute pleasure thank you so much Gillian
0: thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who continue to inspire this podcast and thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me Gillian Knight. if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe please review and and of course you're welcome to get in touch with me directly if you'd like more information via my Instagram artfictions2020 or my website gilliannight.co.uk. Across these you'll find images of the artist's work as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. What are you going to do this afternoon?
1: So, you know, I've been making masks for the NHS. Oh, have you? You know, like those visors yeah, yeah, for a yeah. local company. Yeah. I had these offcuts. But you know, my Nivea piece, which is more solid, you know, like the rib cage.